This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting, and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. Hello, Savala. Welcome to the show. Hey, Summer. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so happy to have you here. I, like I was saying to you, I just, I loved your book. Don't let it get you down. I, it's my favorite kind of book. It's a memoir with, that's written in essays, which I love because I just find that like really easy to kind of consume and then pick back up. And it just is one of those books that really made me think and feel and like deep, deeply, like, like things that I was like, Oh, wow. You know, just made me really think about stuff. And it's also just really raw and vulnerable too. And you're, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And you're such a good writer. (laughs) Well, thank you. I certainly hope so. Cause it's out there for the world to see. So no, you're, you're, you are, you are a very, very good writer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, cause I'm not, so I can, I can identify when somebody else is, <laughs> but I'm just curious to know, you know, what inspired you to write? Don't let it get you down. Well, it is, as you said, um, a memoir in essays and the essays are about race and gender and the body and to an extent class. Right. And I, I wanted to write in the essay form, because that's what comes naturally to me, you know, these sort of bite-sized vignettes um, feel really intuitive to me as a writer and as a reader. And I wanted to write about race and gender and the body because I straddle some of the cultural divides and those issues in ways that have been really foundational and definitional in my life. And I think you know, race, gender, body, like those are foundational and definitional in everybody's life. For me, my perspective is, is maybe a little different than some people's because, um, I'm mixed race. You know, my dad was black and Mexican and my mom is white. I have been fat and thin over and over throughout my lifetime. Currently fat for those who are curious, probably fat for the rest of my life. I'm thinking, you know, most likely as I've found more peace in my body. I'm assuming that's, that that's my body for now and and for the long haul. And, you know, I wanted to write about these things framed in the body in particular, my body, that's sort of unusual in certain ways because the body is like, it's where everything happens, right? It's where we experience race and gender. It's where our knowledge about ourselves really resides, right? 
It's where the personal and the political are colliding all the time. And I wanted to kind of catch the sparks that fly off that collision in my own life using my own experiences um, as someone who's in between in a lot of ways to, you know, try and illuminate issues around race and gender and the body for other people um, and also for myself, right? Like selfishly, of course, I, I wrote for myself, but um, I wrote hoping that other people would feel impacted or feel seen um, or, or have insight from what I had to say about my own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, you, you talk a lot about throughout just little snippets of, and then in some cases, a lot more detail of just what your relationship with your body was like growing up. Can you speak to that a bit? Cause I know like, I mean, one of the first things you call out is just that you were put on your first diet at age three or four. Yeah. So it's a, it's been a long ride. And, uh, you know, for, for those who are listening, I'm now 40. So I have been in this sort of game of, of, uh, being aware of my body as something that the culture thought was wrong and something that I thought was my responsibility to fix, you know, for a very long time, like going on four decades, I was a chubby kid And I look back on that now and realize, you know, the main reason that I was a chubby kid was probably just genetics. Like one side of my family includes a lot of heavy, fat, chubby, thick people, you know, whatever, whatever word you want to use. I usually use the word fat and I use it without a value judgment, just as a description. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of fat people on my dad's side of the family. And I, I very much like inherited my genetic blueprint from him. Um, and so I, you know, I was a chubby kid and my mom's side of the family who I mentioned a minute ago is, is white and, uh, you know, pretty influenced by kind of like waspy, uh, beauty standards, waspy white Anglo-Saxon Protestant beauty standards. Didn't really know what to do with my chubby body as a kid. And like many parents, you know, they, especially in that era, you know, I guess it was the eighties. My mom was worried. She was worried about what it would be like for me to be fat. She was worried about my health. You know, she was worried about all these things that are, that are at their root, like fat phobia, but her intentions were, were good, right? She was trying to protect me from what she thought would be a lifetime of trouble. And so she, she started me on diets the other the other wrinkle of that was that she herself was a chronic dieter, as was her mother before her. You know, like there's a way that dieting is often kind of passed down like a like a very heavy, heavy heirloom. Yes. You know, through the generations. And that that was the case in my family too. So my mom basically, you know, when I say she put me on a diet when I was three or four, what I what I really mean is that she sort of enrolled me in her own process of dieting, you know, restricting and then sort of falling off the wagon and then getting a plan and dieting and restricting and then falling off the wagon. I mean, you know, the way that it goes. And so I started that cycle from a really young age, again, informed by my mom's desire to protect me from fat phobia, although she didn't have the vocabulary for that at the time. Right. Yes. And, you know, so I, I, I just always feel like I need to, to drop that in because her intentions were good, but, you know, she was really profoundly misinformed 
um, about the harm that would ultimately come to me from, from dieting. But I never want her to be villainized in these conversations because she was, she was doing what she was taught to do. I relate to that so much because my mom was the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, it's like that for a lot of us, right? You know, I was looking the other day at um, some ads from 1950s magazines, you know, things that kind of probably my mom would have seen. And it's like the way they talk about women's bodies and the sort of like chipper, you know, insistence on the need to control the body of girls in every kind of way is so intense in that era. And I mean, you could argue it's very intense in our era too, but it gave me some compassion for my mom because she herself was so deeply indoctrinated against her will at such such a young age, you know, before she could consent. And then that was my experience too, you know, because it was her experience. Yeah, yeah. And I know like we grew up pretty much the exact same time because in the book you sort of mentioned like, you know, the influence of like Britney Spears and Gwen Stefani and like their bodies and trying to, you know, shape ourselves into those bodies. And I was just like, oh my God, I totally remember that. <laughs> like just the, oh, yeah. like just how, and how my body is just not supposed to look like either of those things, like either no, of those people. I mean, same here. It's just, it's just not. I mean, I, if I spent hundreds, thousands of dollars probably and thousands of hours, you know, I don't know how we measure emotional energy, but thousands of units of emotional energy um, striving for that. And it, it was it was not meant to be. And it's funny because I you know, man, I, you know, it was almost like a lust that I, that I felt for their bodies and the sense of just craving it for myself so intensely when I was in my teens and my twenties. And the funny thing is, you know, I began to divest from diet culture and to free myself from it. Oh, I guess it's been about six years now. So maybe six years ago, but I still you know, when I see Britney Spears doing her twirling dances on Instagram, or we watch The Voice in my house, which is a singing competition, and Gwen Stefani is occasionally one of the judges, you know, when I see her, I still have a reaction, right? There's still, it's like, there's still an ember of that in me. Mm -hmm. Uh, How could there not be, you know, like, it's in the air we breathe. I was raised with it you know, it's sort of like being fluent in a language. Like I'm never going to not fluently speak my first language. Yes. I might learn languages, but I can't forget English, you know? Yes. So I still have a little bit of that pull, but it impacts me so differently. You know, I mentioned that just because I think it's helpful to hear people say that, you know, recovery is complicated and it's not one and done. It's not clear cut. I, you know, I, I still feel the pull sometimes. I just oh, don't respond yeah. to the way I used to. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I honestly like, you know, some people have asked me, you know, like, well, how long does it take to never want to lose weight? And I'm like, never. Like, you know, I think that like exactly like you said, like it's just hard coded into us mm-hmm. and it's more about how we respond to it, how, and, and, you know, how like kind of emotionally charged it is versus whether that, you know, that pull is still there or not. Cause I just think it's like, of course that's going to be there. Like, it's just, you know, the way our culture is the way that we've been programmed to see those bodies and the relationship that we have to that. It's like, it's, it's impossible to just completely hundred percent divest from that. I think, I think it is too. And, and, um, accepting that is, 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 
it makes liberation a lot easier, right? Because it means that you don't have to be 100% quote unquote cured to still enjoy your freedom, right? Yes. And that that makes it attainable in a way that it's not if you um, expect and require complete abstinence from diet thoughts, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that would just be like, that that would just be ridiculous. (laughs) You were born in a different dimension that could be your goal, but in this one you know, here we are. Right, right, right. So, you know, one of the things that you really weave throughout this entire book is just, your, you know, you, you talk about your experiences being mixed race, being black, Mexican, and white, and not really feeling at home in either group. And I know at one place, you uh, at one point, you even just say, like, you're able to kind of mirror to belong to the racial or class group in which you find yourself. What was, what was that like for you when, uh, when you were growing up? And even now? Well, it's complicated. There are certainly aspects of in-betweenness that are wonderful, right? Such as being able to understand kind of differing perspectives around race. You know, I very often can relate to or or have have experienced or just can kind of get like both the privileged perspective or habits on an issue and the subordinated perspectives and habits on a particular issue. And I mean, to me, I find that interesting and and fascinating and beneficial. And it, it makes me kind of a dual citizen of lots of different aspects of the world. You know, I can sort of be a translator in ways that are, that are, that are great for me and sometimes for the people around me. So I, I wouldn't trade being a person who has a sense of dislocation, right? As a mixed person, as someone who's had a thin body and a fat body, as a woman, as someone who who has spent a lot of time in really wealthy, privileged spaces, but it didn't come from that kind of background. I wouldn't trade that. I think what's tricky about it is, you know, we all long for an uncomplicated sense of belonging, right? You know, when you talk to people who've like met their person, you know, or or gotten married or, you know, and are happy with their with their person, what you often hear them say is that it, it was just so comfortable. Like there was something about it that was just easy. It just clicked. It just worked. You know, that's certainly the experience I have. I had when I met my partner and we all yearn for kind of an uncomplicated. I just feel at home here. It's just comfortable. And, um, you know, I don't have that. (laughs) I I certainly feel that I belong some, you know, in lots of different places, but there's always footnotes, right? There's always like a little, but on the other hand, in the back of my mind, and, you know, I try to use it to my advantage where I can. It's who I am. I can't do anything about it. You know, it's, it's who I am. And so I take the good with the bad. And, um, it certainly is fodder for writing about identity, Mm-hmm. and writing about race and gender and the body. And so at least in this instance, I think it served me well. So do you feel then like what I'm kind of hearing is that you've almost like kind of embraced that in-betweenness? Like you're, you you know, like that's who you are. Am I, is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Like that, that's like that you feel like almost like that in-betweenness also gives you a sense of belonging with yourself. Yes. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. You know, there's there's an expression I love, which is let go or be dragged, right? And so with my in-betweenness, which I sometimes describe as dislocation, 
or sometimes I describe it as dual citizen, dual citizenship, you know, it depends on my mood. I, I, I have had to let go and just accept that, that, uh, in between this is my lot in life. Like, you know, even with my body, right. Having been fat and thin so many times and bearing the physical markers of that on my body, you know, there's a way that, that, if you let go of your intense need and desire to fit neatly into one of the categories that our culture has built, you can come home to yourself. And it's a much more peaceful way to experience life, I have found. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. One of the quotes I pulled out was, whatever life hands you, your body fundamentally protects and shields you or is a fu- or is fundamentally a target. Like I just thought that was such a powerful, powerful quote. Do you want to just elaborate on that one a bit? Yes, I love that quote too. And it comes from an essay where I am exploring like the tensions and the frictions of having a body that is in some ways privileged, but in other ways marginalized, right? So I talk about, you know, having light skin and having the privilege of light skin, uh, but also being black. Um, I talk about, you know, having experienced thin privilege and also having experienced fat phobia. And I talk about class, like how having more money, you know, as I've gotten older and have have chosen a career path that gives me a certain amount of financial freedom um, and been lucky enough to have success in that path, you know, how does that react, my current socioeconomic reality rub up against kind of having grown up exposed to some poverty, right? Because my dad was very poor, like poor to the tune of uh, you know, no running water in his house. So when I stayed with him, you know, we used the bathroom by using buckets outside the house. Like that wasn't my only experience growing up, but I, I did brush against that kind of poverty. Um, and so how, like, what, what do I experience as these things come together? What can I learn from the privileged aspects of my life bumping up against the less privileged ones? And what I have come to believe, I mean, maybe in my next book, I will take this in a totally different direction. But what I've come to believe is that when you have a body that is fundamentally marginalized by your community. So for me, I'm a woman, I'm fat, I'm black, you know, that's three pretty marginalized identities. Whatever privilege you can eke out for yourself or whatever kind of advantage you can eke out for yourself it's not as strong as it would be for someone who isn't in a marginalized body. Right. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it's not quite as dependable, like being who I am, even though I'm an attorney and, you know, I have various markers of privilege and I have other privilege that, you know, like I'm cisgendered, you know, I'm, I'm fairly able-bodied, like even those things offer me limited protection because my body is, is fundamentally one that is targeted in our society and your body is inescapable. It's your home, like it or not for better and worse. So that's what I meant by that sentence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose it's somewhat pessimistic of a view, but uh, it just, it mirrors my experience. Yeah, no, I think it, it, it speaks volumes just in one, in one short sentence. So thank you for 
for talking about it a little bit more. One one of the other things that you talk about in your book is just how your your mom who who's white provided you with racial education. What was that like for you? Yeah, so um my my mother is white as you say and my father was black and Mexican and um my parents split up when I was young and I I stayed sometimes with my dad but my mom was my primary caregiver. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that I was a mixed black person being raised by um, a white person who was pretty conscious, right? She was pretty woke to the parlance of today. Mm-hmm. She was a social justice advocate. I and, mean, you know, she had her blind spots for sure. We all do, including around race. She had blind spots, but she, she did understand that she had a child who in the eyes of the world was black, right? I, I might define myself differently, you know, but in the eyes of the world, she understood that we still operate culturally under the one drop rule. And so she understood that, that it was that she had to make sure that I had access to black people, um, black children, black adults, to black politics, black history, black culture, black music, all of these things. Because if I didn't, I would I would really be homeless in the sense of having a home in the culture, right? I would be a person who the world saw as black, who had no sense of belonging to blackness. And, you know, what a difficult road that would be to walk. So, she went out of her way to find opportunities for me to connect with blackness. We listened to a lot of black music. You know, we went to a black church. We joined a black gospel choir. You know, these were things that she um, she thought that, you know, I, that would give me an education that I might have gotten automatically if my dad had been in the home um, or his family had been around me more. But he wasn't and they weren't. I think, you know, it would... it it would be easy, but also a mistake to, to think of her efforts as being contrived. They were purposeful, right? They weren't organic in the sense that they didn't happen automatically. Um, they were purposeful, but they weren't contrived and they were very powerful. And I thank her for them. Yeah. You know, they were also imperfect, right? Like, she is white. There, There's no way that she could provide an education about Blackness that wasn't in some way, you know, diminished by the blinders of her own whiteness. And we are now at a point in our relationship where we can talk about those things. And her her fragility is 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 pretty minimal, you know. So I have been able over the years to say, remember how, you know, you used to say my dad was illiterate and kind of say it like a badge of honor, you know, that you were this, you know, white girl, this minister's daughter and, you know, from a family that cared a lot about class, but like, wow, you really bucked the trend and you hooked up with this black man who was illiterate. Remember I used to say that about my dad, like he wasn't illiterate. He could read and write, you know? Um, and I think that observation was racialized. And I think maybe you might have been using some aspect of his um, identity as you perceived it to kind of prop yourself up as a good white person. You know, I'm able to say that to her now and kind of say, what do you think about that, mom? And we can talk about it. But certainly one of the challenges of growing up as a mixed 
black person anyway with a white parent is that you have to contend with their own racial blind spots without their help, which because they're blind spots, right? Yeah. Which I have to do and and which now thankfully um, we can generally talk about. That's awesome. That's so great that you have that relationship and, and um, yeah, that she's open to that. And uh, yeah, just such a, such an interesting experience. Yes. I'm very lucky that she is open to it. You know, it's been a lot of years of difficult conversations and her being willing to have me talk about mistakes that she made as a mom, which now I'm a mom and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not looking forward to that day. <laughs> we've done it around race, And of course we've done it around my body. And, um, you know, for many years I had really deep anger at her, um, for setting me on this road of dieting that has been a very destructive force in my life, even though she didn't mean for it to be. And, you know, so we, we have little by little and over time found our peace in in that way too, around that aspect of, of who I am and who she is. That's great. That's so good. Just speaking of your family and your lineage, you know, two, two kind of things that you really talk to in the book is, is one, you know, on, on your dad's side, your great grandmother, Laura, who was murdered by white supremacists. And then conversely, you know, on your mom's side, the family that had the three enslaved women, like, what was it like for you to learn about your, your history? So I'll just drop a quick um, micro correction, which is oh, that sorry. My grandmother. No, no worries. I mean, it's my family, not yours, right? Like, it's easy, easy mistake. My second great grandmother, Laura, was killed um, by white supremacists in Texas um, in the 1890s. Learning about this part of my family history was extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging. I mean, the, um, you know, if you're black in America, like, and your family has been here for a few generations, you kind of just assume, right, that the family line goes back into chattel slavery and that that is your lineage, you know, and then I, you know, we have since authenticated that through research. Um, but I think most black Americans, you know, of all hues, of all classes, of all politics, of all types, who have some roots in this country, just, it's just sort of understood, right? Because that is the factual record of our history. Learning about how my second great grandmother, Laura, was murdered was, of course, brutal, you know. And I learned about it right at the same time that uh, Brianna Taylor's murder was being talked about a lot in the news. Wow. And, I, you know, it, their stories are very, very similar. They're both, you know, shot to death at home in the presence of their family. You know, I contend as a result of, of, of a white supremacy based system of law enforcement. And so there was a, there was a sense I had uh, of how little has changed, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, that Breonna Taylor died this way and uh, with no accountability. And my second great grandmother died this way over a hundred years ago with no accountability. So unfortunately, that's a very familiar feeling for most people of African descent in this country anyway. And, and uh, you know, I'm pretty, pretty used to sitting with it. I have a lot of practice. What I, what I was not so used to sitting with and don't have so much practice with is the white side of my family, my mom's side of the family, 
And and my sister, here, here's what happened. My sister found a, a deed on a genealogy website that suggested that our fourth great grandfather had enslaved people, you know, or owned slaves, right? To use the terminology of that time. I, I really, that terminology makes me uncomfortable because of course, legally that is true, you know, in that time you could own people, but it seems like such a transgression of the of moral law that I have a hard time even using the phrase own slaves. So he enslaved um, people and the family did for decades, um, trafficking men and women and children and, and holding them in bondage and, and, and so on. There was a, there was one way in which, you know, I wasn't surprised, like, Many white families in this country have a literal and, you know, ongoing connection to chattel slavery, though they don't often know it, right? Because the interest in doing the research is is not there. So there was a way that it wasn't a surprise because we figured, right? Especially because we knew that my mom's family came from Virginia, that they had owned land, that that side of the family, at least up until a generation ago, was pretty racist, it just seemed like it was possible. Right. And we knew they had come to the the country when the country was actually colonies, right? So they had been here for a long time. So there was a way that it was like, okay, you know, as we thought. But there was another way that um, it was extraordinarily burdensome and sickening to metabolize and contend with the reality that my family, you know, people whose blood runs in my veins, um, were human traffickers and, um, had claimed to own people. That's not something I was used to feeling. And I can certainly say, you know, I get it. I get why white people in this country, in the United States, don't necessarily want to dive back into the historical record and, and discern what their connection to chattel slavery truly is because it's, it's a filthy, dirty process. You know, you want to take a shower with a Brillo pad after you look through those records. Right. Um, On the other hand, you know, my training as a lawyer uh, teaches me that if you want to solve a problem, you don't have a prayer unless you have the facts. You've got to, you have to have the facts, you have to have the information or else there's no way to um, construct a remedy that, that is responsive to the harm, right? So that was a new experience, kind of wearing those shoes of feeling like a descendant of slave owners and feeling the various feelings that came with that. And I'm still, you know, I'm still thinking about it. We're still doing research and trying to understand more. I'd love to have more of the names of the people that we enslaved. Um, the only one I have named, the only three I have names for right now are uh, Phyllis and Grace, two women, and Peggy, who was a little girl and who I talk about um, extensively in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I just found uh, those stories just so powerful. And I know you mentioned the website coming to the table that has the 21-page guide on how to atone personally for slavery, which you, you know, you have that footnote. I just wanted to throw it in there because, you know, yeah, like, I mean, I'm Canadian and, and uh, my grandparents were on both sides were immigrants. My history's a little bit different, but at the same time, like, even if it wasn't, I don't think I would have thought to like, it, you know, 
just ignorance, right? Or just sort of like denial, like, oh, that wasn't my history. So I, you know, I just want to move forward. And that's obviously just, you know, coming from a place of like fragility and privilege and everything else. And so, yeah, just, I really appreciated the way that you, that you, way that you shared that and spoke about it and how that made you feel. Oh, thank you, Summer. I mean, I think about privilege, you know, there are many ways that I'm privileged, right? Um, As I mentioned, I'm cisgendered, I'm able-bodied. Those are like, you know, little cocktails of bonuses that were just handed to me that I didn't earn, right? And that I don't have to think about if I don't want to. So I totally get it. I mean, I that's how privilege works, right? Privilege is like, well, I don't, if I don't want to think about it, I don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. That's the whole nature of it. But I, I think that, you know, <laughs> it's like buying a house, right? Like you didn't build the house, you know, you didn't, you're not responsible. You're not literally responsible for, for the choices that the architect made or that the repair person made a hundred years ago, you know, that has nothing to do with you, but you live in the house. So you actually are responsible for the things that are going on with it now. Right. And when, when I shrug, as I often do, that's the knee jerk reaction of privilege. Like when I shrug away from engaging with something that doesn't seem germane to me because it's not my struggle. I think about that. I think about this culture as being a ho- like a house that I live in. And uh, I didn't choose who it was built, but I am, I am responsible for the leaks and the cracks that come up under my watch. And uh, I have to respond to them, right? That's what it means for me to be in this house right now. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying that. You said that so well there. Well, I am a writer. You are, I know. <laughs> like I said, I'm like, you are a good writer, not I. <laughs> also a little bit obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I can match you there. <laughs> um, the, the, you know, you're, you're a mom to a daughter and um, I'm curious to know, you know, like, how are you teaching her about her identity? How are you teaching her to have a good relationship with her body? You know, what's that, what's that been like for you to be a mom in that way? It's been everything, you know, it's been great. It's been hard. It's been revelatory. I feel my own uh, shit come up all the time. You know, mm-hmm. I am, I, I am absolutely determined to do everything in my power, whether, whether that's a lot or a little to give her a foundation in her body that is unselfconscious that is neutral with, you know, with a sprinkle of joy, right? You know, I do want her to feel a sense of joy in her body. That's about her body being her home. That's about um, her body being safe. And that's about her body being, you know, a tool for her to experience life and express herself as opposed to an adornment or something that she should decorate or treat like an endless project that needs to be fixed, I want to root her in that as much as I can, because I know the culture is going to come in with all the other crap, you know, and if I can give her a foundation and that maybe her roots will have sunk deep enough into that healthier soil that by the time, you know, the storms of diet culture come, she won't be as swayed by them as she otherwise would have been. But I'm sure I'm making mistakes all the time, you know, I do sometimes have to really contend with my own stuff around food and and what we eat and how much we eat as a family. I'm certainly light years ahead of where I would have been had I not spent the last five or six years 
becoming really politically activated and the connections between diet culture and fat phobia and racism and capitalism and all of that stuff, right? And doing the personal work of extracting myself from it and extracting it from me. But I'm still fluent in my first language. So the the thoughts and the, the synapses still fire, you know, the neural pathways are still there. The thoughts still happen, but I'm doing my best. I'm really doing my best. Uh, she's never heard me talk poorly about my body, which is a huge accomplishment personally because of how I grew up or anyone else's body. You know, she has heard me speak positively about bodies many, many times. So that's something I feel that I'm, I'm doing right. I think I struggle though, because, you know, I'm sure this is true for other moms and children, but I know from experience that it's true when you're raising a daughter or when you're raising a black or brown person, part of my responsibility as her mom is to teach her how to be safe, right? It's to make her aware of the potential harms that can come her way so that she can handle them as best she can, you know, that so that she has an appropriate sense of risk so that um, she understands what boundaries ought to be. And so she can have a sense of when they've been transgressed. The problem, of course, with giving a child that kind of education is that it it ruins her innocence, yes. right? It makes her aware of, of how her body is mistreated. Um, it starts to give her a sense of insecurity in the sense of not being secure in the culture. And once you have that in your head, it's very hard not to see yourself that way, right? So it's a, it's a very tricky balance. I do not claim to be good at it. Um, But it's what I think about all the time. How do I give her the information she needs to both be safe and have, you know, be clear eyed about the danger that she faces in a world that doesn't really like or protect women and doesn't really like or protect black people while also letting her hang on to, you know, her inherent sort of birthright sense of neutrality and joy and safety in her body for as long as possible. Yeah, I don't know the answer to it, but I think about it every day. It's such a complicated thing, right? Like, I mean, I have a, I have a, I have a boy and, and you, you know, we're white. So my situation is different. And, and, and yet I still think about, you know, just like, horrible things and like, you know, protecting him from the realities of, of the world and stuff. And it's just, I, I don't know. It's just not one of those things that you really think about when you go into parenthood that like, these are the things that you're going to really have to figure out and face. And it's complicated stuff. And I don't think anyone gets it a hundred percent. Right. I don't think so either. And it, it is very complicated. I mean, this culture does a real number on boys too, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, speaking in America, I can't speak for other parts of the world, being raised uh, to know that you're white or to believe that you're white, sure, comes with a shitload of goodies and privileges, but there's harm in that too, you know? So it's certainly not to equate them, but it's simply to say that like these systems uh, that we have around gender and race, they tether everyone. Mm. And how we teach our children about it is extremely complicated. And I don't think 
you know, our cultural fluency quite meets the depth of the challenges. And so it often falls, you know, to moms and dads and grandparents or, you know, whoever the grownups are in a kid's life to try and cobble that education together for them in a way that is effective, but not cruel to the child. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other thing you mentioned was just how, like, you know, it really brings up your own being a parent, like really brings up your own kind of insecurities and fears. Like it's like a mirror on your deepest fears, right? I know. Let me just index mirror for you, mama, and hold it. (laughs) It's like, and you, and you have to, and, and I'm glad that I've done like so much work around my own shit that I'm able to then, you know, see it a little more clearly and be like, ah, this is my stuff. Like not, not his stuff. And I got to hold that for myself and like really be (laughs) like, let him be who he is. But yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a wild ride. It is. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it has been so wonderful having you here. I could talk about 155 other things, if not more. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Should we go page by page? I I know because there's a couple like, do you have like two minutes? Maybe you need more. Yeah. But like yeah. the, one of the things that like blew my head open was Law and Order SVU because I love that show. Yeah. And you talk about that show and I was like, oh my God, I just never like thought about it that way. I mean, I did, but not, but not, you know what I mean? I do. Oh man, you do like such a good critique of it. Can you just talk to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, first, let me say I love Law & Order SVU too. This is not a like, you know, bring the hammer down on SVU because I, I participate um, and I don't want to get hate mail. About, no. Like, and it's like got such a, it's got a strong female cat. Like, like I almost named my son Benson because I was going to name him after Olivia Benson. Like, cause I love her that much. So. Yes. There, there is a lot to be said for the show, including how it sheds light on and tells the stories of in particular violence against women, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot stick your head in the sand and watch that show. You know, like you have to be aware that it's happening because the show tells those stories. And that's, that is in many ways a gift, but yes, there's an essay in the book where I I talk quite a bit about SVU and I am critiquing it. Um, But really I'm critiquing myself because Uh, what I realized before I began writing this essay was that I was completely confounded by my own behavior. And here's what I mean by that. I am a person who, you know, I'm a feminist. There's no question about that. I rage at the ways in which women are controlled and destroyed and harmed in our culture, you know, often through physical and sexual violence, but in, in all kinds of ways. Um, I'm a person who's been sexually assaulted. So, you know, it's very personal. It's not just political. It's like purely political, my sense of feminism. It's also like rooted in my own body. And, you know, at the same time, I used to watch marathons of SVU in my apartment, you know, on the phone with my girlfriend. And as anyone who watches the show knows, I don't know, nine out of 10 episodes feature the story of a woman who was raped or murdered or brutalized or stalked or you know you see her corpse I mean sometimes you see it in the on the sidewalk sometimes you see it again with the medical examiner I mean you know it's like 
brutal depictions of yeah. violence against women are often the animating force behind each episode. And I would sit and watch and watch and watch hours and hours and hours. And here's the kicker feeling entertained, right? Enjoying yeah. it, like liking it. And I couldn't, I could not make those two pieces of myself fit seamlessly together you know, that I'm someone who purports to be disgusted by violence against women. And I will sit on the couch and watch hours and hours and hours of it. I don't do that around blackness. Like I'm not interested in graphic depictions of violence against black people or fat people. You know, it's just upsetting and gross. So why is it that I can consume this? Yeah. That's what I wanted to explore. Yeah. Um, and you know what I came to discover? I don't want to give it all away, Summer. I want some of no, the no, 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 no. Yeah, go buy the book or go buy the library to you know get the book that way. But what I came to discover is that I have had, like many women, an education around gender that has told me because I'm a woman, I'm almost by definition at risk. I've had an education that has really normalized violence against women you know, starting when I was an infant or maybe even before I was born, you know, based on some things that were going on in my family. And, you know, in a way, as I said, it's good that these stories are told because there's a lot of truth to them. I question whether it's truly harmless to tell them as entertainment because, when you're watching hours and hours and hours of entertainment that is built around these literal depictions of this kind of harm, um, it does normalize it even further, right? You, you, I mean, just imagine getting to a point where you could be entertained by a marathon of a show that depicted like lynchings, Mm. right? Like, I don't have the stomach for that. Yeah. Uh, but I have the stomach for this. And it's because I was taught to stomach it. And um, I wanted to unpack that and try to figure out how the hell did that happen? Yeah. It was like, I, yeah, I mean, that chapter, um, that sto- that essay, I was like, whoa, I just never, because I just never, ever, you know, it was like just opening it up and like looking inside this big suitcase that I had never looked into. And it's and and it's bigger than that because there's so many shows like that, you know, like every dateline episode is like some woman yeah. being killed or whatever and it's yeah, like it's like this the, our culture is like obsessed with female violence as entertainment. That's what I took away. I was like, "Whoa, like whoa." And I just and I mean it's so obvious when you think about it. Yeah. But, um it is obvious you know, when you think about it, but when I started, you know, it, it was it was also for me like a suitcase that I opened for the first time and, you know, God knows how long. I couldn't even remember what was in it kind of thing. And, you know, I will say this is a really complicated topic because there are there are women who who make and produce this this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's room for many perspectives. I'm not attempting to offer the the, you know, a uniform unitary theory here. But I, I do think it's says something interesting about us that that uh this is entertaining for yeah. people yeah yeah no there's like there's nuance around it 
and everything else. Uh, like there is nuance in everything, but it was just, yeah, it was such a, yeah, that one. I'm glad I got to talk to you about it. Cause I was like, Oh, I got to talk to you about this one. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't want to keep you any longer. I don't want to give away the entire book, but it's just so good. I loved it so much. I hope people go out and grab it. Where can people find more of you and where can they find, don't let it get you down. They can find Don't Let It Get You Down at their local library, at any independent bookseller, and of course at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, you know, all all the big ones too. And I just want to plug libraries again because, you know, books are expensive. Of course, I love when people buy the book, but you know, you don't have to buy it. And they can they can find more of me on Twitter where uh, I I tweet extremely occasionally at Savala Tweets. And if they really want to interact with me, they should hop onto Instagram because that's where I tend to party. And I am not quite Beyonce on Instagram, like as almost, but not quite Beyonce. <laughs> I love your Instagram because you always share like um, uh, amazing um, images of, of diverse bodies and celebration of bodies. And I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of your posts, but we didn't have time. And I really wanted to focus on the books. So we'll go have you back on again some other time to do that. But I love, I love your content. Your Instagram is one of my favorite accounts. So Oh, thank you so much, Summer. I mean, I post those those like montages of real bodies, like often close-ups, like because it's medicinal to me, right? Yeah. And it really was when I was in my very early recovery. Um, and since we're on the topic, I will just quickly say thank you officially to you for being one of my early teachers and one of my early, you know, you were one of the very early people who kept beckoning me down the road towards liberating my body from diet culture um in those very early days where you're like so vulnerable and every step is like oh my gosh I don't know if I can take one more step in this direction you know um and you were among the early early people who beckoned me so I am profoundly and deeply thankful and I will I will add this book would not exist had I not gone through that process because frankly I spent too much time and energy running away from my body while I was in diet mode to write a book that was rooted in my body. So thank you for the role that you played in helping me come creatively uh, to a place where I could pull this book off. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's like the highest compliment. (laughs) Thank you so much. I don't even know what to say. Just, (laughs) I'm just going to sit with that one. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been such an honor and I wish you all the best with, with your book and everybody listening, go out and get it because it's really, really awesome. (laughs) You're going to love it. Thank you, Summer. The pleasure is all mine. And I can't wait to do it again someday. Thank you. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanin. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on.